yeah, we should be fine. Uh, let's never podcast at fucking eight a.m. my time again. <laughs> I'm sitting here like, oh god. But normally I'm, and normally I think I'd be fine. I don't know. I'm so fucking tired right now. Yeah, it's very, very tired. <laughs> cool. I'm like, I love being up in the morning, but um, I don't like to. Yeah. Be, I like, yeah. Exactly. I like to be up by yeah. myself doing yeah. nothing in the morning. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, that I That's where we're at. Where. That's why we can, made our own businesses. <laughs> Don't speak to me. You're like, oh no, sorry. I mean, I'm literally podcasting from bed right now in a pink fuzzy robe. So yeah, your whole the vibe picture the right vibe. now is a vibe. <laughs> <laughs> like oh, she man. just has her microphone, holding it in her hand, robe in the bed, just. Oh man, that is too good. Put that on the socials. It's the best audio in here because I got a lot of throw pillows That's and fair. shit. You know, like I'm a chick with like a thousand throw pillows. It's great for audio. <laughs> Welcome back to the Health Unfiltered podcast. My name is Nicole, and we are having an early morning together as a gang (laughs) for this episode. So, how are we? I know we've already kind of started sleepy, so... I don't know what's going on, man. I used to be a young... I almost said fertile. Uh, Young, like... (laughs) What's the word I'm looking for? It starts with a V? Fuck it. I used to be young and energetic. Vivacious? Yeah, maybe. And now I'm like, it's 830. It's too early to podcast. Uh, like, what? Uh, How did we just have 8 a.m. classes, like, for so oh, yeah. long Holy and just, shit. like, power through? <laughs> yeah. And now we're like, wait, what? You want me to get up at yeah. what time? <laughs> like, I'm, oh, no, thank you. No. I'm so glad we don't have video for this podcast yet because we look like the oh, sorriest bunch up. of assholes <laughs> ever right now. Just going to put my hoodie up and be like, okay. <laughs> Uh, no one can we tell. We should have I'm like made it a requirement to show up in our pajamas and just look <laughs> yeah. as ridiculous as possible. I mean, I, I got the memo. In my underwear, so yeah, I, like we don't want to see that bro. nude. Yeah, yeah, that's that's <laughs> top tier content. People have to pay for. Come on. Oh that's boy. Not free. <laughs> so, we should yeah, see so health that, unfiltered Patreon hosted <laughs> by Ro. Yeah, mm-hmm. <laughs> it's just me. <laughs> oh man. So, Ro, wow. are you um, being Mr. No. Faithful over there and putting some no. Kahula in your coffee? I can't. You know, I I, I know Kahula. That's how you say it? Kahula. I don't know what that is, honestly. Uh, it's just like a liquor. No, I was never I, an alcoholic. Okay. Neither am I. Uh, no, I thought about it, and then I woke up, and I was like, I'm so tired, and I still got a lift and stuff today, so... <laughs> No, today we will talk about the iced Americano that I have, and it's from Michael Thomas, and it's from right down the street, and coffee's less fun to talk about than beer, but uh, they they put in like ice cubes that are made out of coffee so that when it melts, Ooh. it doesn't, uh, what's it called? Uh-huh. Uh, dilute it? D- dilute it, yeah, so I'll be shitting here in about 10 minutes, I guess, so. We'll have an intermission oh, with like Jeopardy music for real. <laughs> yeah. It's time for his I'm morning like, oh, shit. <laughs> yeah, I, well, I was concerned. I, I did have my, my morning bowel movement already, but I was like, man, if this coffee hits at the wrong time, this is going to be bad, but here we are. But if so. just like heard you just like fart really loud. <laughs> <laughs> well, I'd be sure to stand up and put it in the mic. You know, that's the content. That's the content people really want. Oh, my God. Uh, so, yeah, so iced funny. Americano. What about you guys? You know I'm drinking coffee. I put some ashwagandha in it. Oh, feeling great. So anti-inflammatory. I actually got up super early this morning and I've already been working for a couple hours, which is okay, not, not like me, but that's okay. not like me. Um, so I already had coffee and now I've switched to some Tulsi sweet rose tea to help bring it down a notch. We've got the cortisol spike. I'm amped up and I've got Tulsi tea to bring it down. You don't look amped. <laughs> on the inside this i'm is, very amped okay? she's like she's like i'm just like amped. i'm amped up while she's in energetic. her pink fuzzy robe laying in her bed 
Oh my god, that is wild. Brooke's version like, of Amped is my version of Amped, and I'm here for it. Yeah. <laughs> like I exist in this in this little area here. That's all area. I got right now. Oh That's amazing. Oh, well, cheers, everybody. Um, cheers. Love having my morning coffee with you all. Mm, we do have a question of the week, and it is around the controversial topic of white rice versus brown rice so brooke we got a question for you can we eat white rice or are we supposed to just be eating brown rice what's going on there we can absolutely (laughs) eat white rice brown rice tastes like hot garbage if you know maybe someone maybe someone else really likes it or has a good recipe but i just don't like it and i used to eat it because i felt like i had to but mm-hmm. there's such minimal difference in the fiber and the micronutrient content that you can get that other places. If you like yeah. white rice, live your best life. Also, like culturally, eat the foods that you want to eat that are aligned with like what you enjoy. <laughs> Don't force yourself to eat brown rice because it's like some weird trend right now. Um, and just balance out your meals, right? Like our goal is we always want to have a balanced meal with protein source, fat source, carb source fibrous foods, fruits and veggies of some kind. Okay. Like this is our general composition to guide us. So then pick something else that's going to balance out and give you fiber. Pick a good fibrous veggie to go with it, but absolutely enjoy your white rice. It's a very delicious starchy carb. And then just have other whole grains. Like don't, you know, mix it up, have others you enjoy. Mm -hmm. Don't feel like you have to force yourself. The thing with whole grains versus like white grains, I'll just do brief summary here is Essentially, there's this middle piece and there's these outer layers that get stripped. And so that's why it looks like white flour, white wheat, white rice. And there's a lot of nutrients in those outer layers. So try to have whole grains, but you can still have white rice, white bread, white wheat. You know, it's just more about having variety so that you're getting a variety mm-hmm. of nutrients. Yeah, yeah. for sure. <laughs> I like I like to think about it, though. It's like I like like it like i like my women if it ain't white it ain't right you know oh, all right anyway my. i'm just kidding oh, <laughs> what was a good mm. run before we got canceled and i appreciate I know, everyone right? here <laughs> hey i grew up with strong latina women man they have shaped my life in more ways they than come one. in Shout for out you to my now mom, that's for sure my aunts my grandma <laughs> yeah wild Oh my gosh. Well, m- moving on to the <laughs> topic that we will be discussing today, and it will oh, be um, answered. All the questions will be answered by our lovely Row. So this might be interesting. Yeah. So <laughs> wow, say that a little worse. You're like, anyway, I'll be bored as four. Okay. Damn. No, I'm just saying we never know what's gonna what's gonna come out of your mouth. That's fair. I mean, I just made that white is right comment. So. <laughs> oh, my <laughs> God. Oh, okay. Um, if you have been listening to the last few episodes, in episode 46, we talked about why muscles get sore. And Ro educated us all about that, and it was awesome. Specifically, we were talking about how it's deeper than just muscle damage. And in today's episode, we'll have a refresher on muscle soreness, and we'll talk about strength loss, and finally touch on some passive strategies to recover faster. So I'm excited to learn about this because this is not my area of expertise, and I love (laughs) being able to learn from Ro because I know all of us here on the podcast, exercise and strength training is a part of our lives and what we enjoy. So it's always cool to, to see how we can continue to support our body in this aspect. Yeah. So rowboat, can you explain what exercise induced muscle damage is and give us a quick reminder on how muscle soreness occurs? Definitely. So, um, I, I actually gave a talk like this this past Saturday at the uh, NSCA State Clinic here in New Mexico. Uh, and the reason I did it was, one, like this is kind of where my dissertation, and not kind of, <laughs> this is what my dissertation is. I finally <laughs> decided on it. We'll talk about that in another episode. But, um, you know, and, and it's it's information I think we as like people who do things need to know and then also as practitioners because like, you know, 
these recovery strategies, there's a time and place to where we we maybe want that damage to be high. We want that swelling to occur. We want the inflammatory process to continue so that we can adapt versus, hey, I need to be able to train back to back to back to back because I'm trying to peak for something, right? So at that point, you're optimizing. And knowing the differences is going to be really important because, you know, if you can train hard and peak correctly, then you <clears throat> increase your chances of succeeding, right? Uh, so I think it's really important for if you are an athlete or if you are a practitioner, this is going to be really uh, important information. But also if you're just someone who likes to exercise and likes to be fit and not be sore all the time, that's important because I think we all know that whether it's health, uh, nutrition, fitness, or anything within the scope, cons consistency is key. Like you have to keep showing up. Even if you do, you know, we've talked about like you'd rather have five days of 80% than one day of 100, one day of 90, and then 50, 40, 30. Um, so this allows us to recover, to, uh, to show up day in and day out, and then also to kind of like maximize those adaptations <clears throat> so we don't just spend two hours lifting in a gym and then getting in a nice bath and being like, wow, I really trained for nothing because like those adaptations are kind of have gone away. Um, so yeah, so that's kind of why, why I want to do this episode and why I think people should listen intently to our very energetic and pumped 8am podcast. So, <laughs> uh, <laughs> so yeah, uh, EIMD, uh, or exercise induced muscle damage. If someone is unaccustomed to a specific exercise or if it's greater than normal intensity or duration, like all forms of exercise, whether it's lifting, running, cycling, uh, can cause damage and pain. And I think we all know that. Like we've all done something, whether it was hiking, climbing, playing a sport that you haven't played in a long time. The next day you're like, oh, oh fuck, I am sore, right? Everything hurts. And some of that is that you're old, right? Your joints are like, what is going on? Uh, and other parts of it are just like you, you're unaccustomed to it. So your body has some sort of natural response. And we talked about what soreness and damage can kind of be influenced by in that other episode, but mode of muscle activation. So whether you're voluntarily doing it or you're getting like shocked in some way, uh, genetics plays a huge role. For some reason, some people can take more damage than others. Not exactly sure why. Uh, the muscle group that is exercised is also going to affect it. So your legs can take a way better, way more of a beating than your arms can, right? And it makes sense because we're bipedal, like, so we walk. Our legs should be able to take more damage um, compared to maybe our triceps because, you know, we don't really, like, push a lot all day. Uh, and then most importantly, I think volume, intensity, and the novelty of the exercise are going to be, I think, the biggest factors of how sore and damage you can get because even if you are, you know, voluntarily moving your legs and you're able to take a lot of damage, if you do a training session where volume is like stupid high and intensity is somehow also st stupid high and it's all new exercises, like you're going to be, you're going to be sore. Um, so yeah, uh, when it comes to EIMD, there's really like two ways that it occurs. We have our mechanical and metabolic, uh, I guess, pathways or processes. So the mechanical comes from when we uh, exercise, our muscles are consistently contracting. And so the fibers themselves are undergoing a lot of stress. And with that stress, we get those micro tears. And I think we all like know, right, that like, oh, muscle damage is because those, those muscles are tearing themselves apart in a way that makes sense because we have to adapt to that stress. Um, and on the other hand, in order for that contraction to occur, we need the metabolic process. So ATP is moving in and out so that we have energy. Um, inorganic phosphates are becoming uh, more, they're becoming increased because we're breaking down that ATP. And then we have uh, constant efflux and influx of potassium, sodium and calcium because you need those <clears throat> in order for the action potential to keep going uh, and we'll definitely talk about the actual or the action potential um so what i want to hit on this episode is like more of that strength loss because we did talk about muscle soreness uh in episode 46 um 
But uh, as a reminder, I guess, um, muscle soreness comes from not not from like you being able to feel your muscles being damaged, but there's specific receptors. Uh, they're really like pain receptors within the extracellular matrix called nociceptors. And when we exercise, certain chemical signals are released uh, and these attract macrophages. And macrophages are part of your inflammatory response to show up somewhere, macro being big, phage to consume, and they help to consume broken down materials and start the healing process. Um, but they also release bradykinin and prostaglandins, which down the line uh, play a role in the release of neural growth factor and GDNF, which hypersensitize those nociceptors. Um, and that's what our brain perceives as pain. So really all we're, again, episode 46, way deeper dive. Uh, but we do something, body says, ouch. Body says, need to send something to repair, ouch. This thing that's repairing is also sending some more signals out that say, hey, we are hypersensitized. Brain says, it hurts to sit down to poop. You know, <laughs> like mm -hmm. we've all been there on, on squat days. Um, yeah. And so that's like a, a very basic overview of like what exercise induced muscle damage is, the things that can cause it. Um, and then a quick synopsis of episode 46, which was on muscle soreness. Mm -hmm. It's very interesting to to realize how the body is constantly like communicating even oh, yeah. though like we're just trying to go to the gym and either build muscle build muscle or like do it because it makes us feel better whatever it is that we're doing it for but our body is recognizing like this pain or this damage essentially and it's starting to send out all these different like communicators on how yeah. to support and keep us safe essentially is that right yeah 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 and, and it's funny because when i when i first learned about neuro neural growth factors i was like oh well why don't we just come out with a pill that would like block ngf right because then you're like never sore theoretically right but then neural growth factors also help to like create neurons and mm -hmm. work in the brain and so it's like we always talk about how there are no free lunches in physiology if you mess up one thing somewhere down the road or somewhere else in the body, it's going to be affected. So yeah, you may not be as sore, but then your brain isn't working, yeah. <laughs> you know? So it's like, it's like, well, am I, am I willing to be uh, bigger and then be less smart? I know personally, yes, I am. <laughs> I would love to be a fucking behemoth with like a head full of rocks. Uh, but now, you know, I'm a average person with an average brain. So whatever. Mm. Yeah. But it's just, there's a trade-off always somewhere. And that's why maximizing when it's time to maximize is important, but also letting your body heal and adapt and go through mm -hmm. that pain is is also important. So mm -hmm. life is pain, how, baby. Yeah. I love how hearing how that relates also to strength training and exercise because so much of the time we want to be in control or override something when really we just need to let our bodies do what they want to do and do what they're supposed to do. Yeah. Good luck trying to beat, you know, 10 billion years of evolution. Yeah, <laughs> okay. <literally. laughs> cool. So soreness is definitely a mechanism of exercise-induced muscle damage. Can you talk more about strength loss? Yeah. So um, strength loss is, is really cool, I think, because um, with muscle damage, we can we can kind of look more at the the actual muscle fibers and be like, oh, there's tearing going on. You know, we know that there's certain things released, blah blah blah. With strength loss, because strength is <clears throat> mainly a component of uh, the neurons, so you get stronger not necessarily by putting on more muscle, but by having your neurons fire uh, more succinctly, having uh, a decrease in uh, processes that inhibit neurons and having an increase in processes that excite the neuron. So you getting stronger is just you becoming more efficient at doing something in your body being like, oh yeah, I, I can turn on all the signals in the right way to lift this faster or stronger. Um, so when that is affected, right, by what we know as like fatigue, um, it means that you're probably not as strong 
because that neural component is messed up in some way. And obviously, like, muscle damage itself is going to play a role because that's where the tensile strength comes from. But way before we even get there, the neural processes is affected, which I think is really cool. Um, but I think before we get to that, like, we have to know or at least briefly understand the action potential. So the action potential, I think, is like, it's so awesome because every movement we do, right? Like, oh yeah, we think about it and, or we don't like have to necessarily think I'm gonna move my right arm. It's just happening. Um, and it's because we're getting some electrical signal to be sent from our brain, through our spine, through the periphery, like to our hand or whatever. And then from there, that electrical signal turns into a mechanical signal somehow, right? Which is pretty cool. Like, you know, we have all these chemical processes that say brain, electricity, mechanical, like not moving. Uh, and that lies in the action potential. So we'll start like really, I don't want to go through the whole brain thing. I don't think it's necessary. But at the muscle, right, we have this action potential that runs along the T-tubules. And T-tubules are like invaginated within the muscle. So they just lie within the muscle. Um, favorite word in all of science is invaginated, right? Because I'm still 12 years old. Uh, but these T-tubules, they lie within the muscle. And when the action potentials, when the electrical signal goes through them, uh, it opens up these calcium channels. And they're voltage-gated, right? So we have to have a certain amount of stimulus in order to open them. So when they're open, calcium comes into the membrane, comes into the muscle, and that causes the sarcoplasmic reticulum to release even more calcium. So it's like we have this really balanced, uh, I guess, calcium concentration within our muscle that when we're not moving, it sits at a certain, you know, uh, homeostasis. But once we decide we're going to move, we want to move super quickly. All right, we need more calcium to send out even more calcium. And calcium is needed for muscles to contract because on the actual muscle fibers, uh, there's a, a portion on the troponin uh, where it's blocked. And so calcium will come unblock it so that the actual contraction can happen. And, you know, we're not going to get into actin and myosin and the actual like sliding filament theory, but just know that calcium is absolutely necessary for the muscles to contract. So now that we can picture that, right, we understand that we need the membrane to uh, carry this action potential. We need those calcium channels to open up so we get even more calcium. And then we need the muscle fibers to contract. We can start to think about where strength may be affected. And in this case, in a negative way. So at the sarcomeres, the actual muscle, right, if we have tears in our muscle fibers, then it's like cutting a bunch of uh, slits into a rubber band or having a, a metal rod that is like broken in a couple ways. Is that less or more stable than one that is not? It's less, right? Like if I have a pillar that has a bunch of chunks ripped out of it, I'm not going to trust that pillar. And then when we go back to a rubber band, if my rubber band has a bunch of cuts to it, it's more prone to not stretch back uh, as quickly and to not stretch out as far without it tearing. So at the sarcomere itself or at the muscle cell itself, we we talked, and I don't remember what, uh, what episode it was, we talked about Z-disc streaming and how the muscles that normally look like really clear and you can see the lines start to look like the old TVs that are like mm -hmm. scribbled. And, and so that, because it's mismatched and, and you know, like, not correctly aligned uh, means that we have less strength that's going to happen at the muscle. So I think that makes a lot of sense because that's at the muscle, right? But as I talked about earlier, this has strength is mostly neural. So there has to be some, a, lo a lot of neural things that happen before we even get to the muscle. So the calcium channels become uh, even more permeable. Uh, what I mean by that is that like the, ch the channels themselves are supposed to let a certain amount of calcium in and not let things out. When we essentially abuse the, the T-tubules um, with 
consistent action potentials, right? The best way to explain it is that those those channels get tired. And so they allow for more things to come in and then more things to come out. So what's coming in is more calcium, which is not good. And we'll talk about why calcium or too much calcium in a muscle is problematic, but we let things out too. So while this doesn't relate to um, <clears throat> like strength loss, it is important to know because things like creatine kinase, lactate dehydrogenase, and more importantly, I think myoglobin can be released into your blood. Myoglobin, uh, you don't want to release in your blood because that's how like rhabdomyolysis happens. And if you're not familiar with what rhabdo is, it's when your muscles are so broken down that you can essentially die because uh, uh, myoglobin is nephrotoxic, which means that it can destroy your kidneys. And so that's why working out too hard, breaking down muscle, like I think most people, uh, definitely most people don't die from it because you have, go to the hospital, they just flush you with a bunch of fluids to get it out. Um, but if you start peeing Coca-Cola or like just you see a lot of like dark things in your pee then and you're in a lot of pain, it's a pretty good sign that you've had so much damage within a muscle that it's being released and your kidneys are getting beat up because of it. So little tangent there, right? That's why we try not to train too hard all the time uh, or never. We never want to get there. Um, but yeah, so we have things like that releasing but more importantly we have a bunch of calcium coming in so that in itself is going to mess with my ability to be able to contract because you know i'm not at the normal homeostasis i'm either you know uh it's either going to take more for me to contract or it's going to take less which may cause me to over contract and that might be a problem mm -hmm. so we have that with the calcium now we did talk about uh how calcium is not the best thing to have a lot of and because the body right needs to be in in a, a good balance so when we have too much calcium within our extracellular matrix or within our muscle it's just easier to think about that way um, we have an increase in these things called calpanes and calpanes are proteolysis and what a proteolyse is it means proteo so protein lysis destroy so calpanes essentially destroy things that maybe need to be there uh, for the structures itself. So a calpane, um, you know, when we talked about how uh, calcium channels are necessary to release more calcium, this is through the sarcoplasmic reticulum. The sarcoplasmic reticulum sits very closely to the T-tubule uh, because it's like anchored by this thing called the junctophyllin. And it's anchored because obviously if I'm trying to contract something as quickly as possible, well, I want the distance between those impulses to be as short as possible. So if it's right next to it, it's great. But what a calpane can do is it can destroy that junctophyllin. So if I detach the anchor to where the ranidine receptors and the sarcoplasmic reticulum are, then it essentially can just float away or move farther than it's supposed to. And so now, even if I have my brain saying, go, 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 like we're, we're trying to contract here, there's nothing there that can release more calcium. And so if I'm not having that additional calcium released, then going back to the muscle, right? I can't unlock where the contraction needs to happen. And so I will not be able to lift as much or as fast as I normally can. Um, and that is like, that's a huge problem where calpanes can really affect strength loss because you absolutely need that calcium. And if you don't have it, things are not going to move the way that they need to move. And then finally, calpanes do destroy the extracellular matrix. So I know we've talked about collagen on here, um, but collagen is, is just uh, is a form of protein, um, but there's a lot of it in the extracellular matrix and it works to kind of structure it so we have like collagen desmin and things that hold muscles together especially the extracellular matrix and so if we have less of that then that means that there's less structure or support for us to take a weight and move it um, and then that obviously is going to be you know translated to a loss of strength um, so a lot of it really comes from when you think about it this influx of calcium and how it can like 
royally mess up your ability to to contract when you need to and then um to relax when you need to so uh yeah that's how strength loss we at least right now think uh happens in those different sites mm-hmm. is this kind of yeah is this kind of science like new and like we need a lot of research or do you feel like it's more leaning towards like this is the answer yeah i think that's really hard to say um because these things have like we we know that there's a certain amount of electricity that needs to pass through uh those channels for like a single a uh, single muscle fiber to contract or like muscle cells that we can cultivate in cells and we're like okay you know we can cut those up whatever and then we know that in rats, like this is because we're able to cut up rats and we're able to inject them with stuff. Um, and we don't really, you know, we sacrifice them. So <laughs> it's like, hey, thank you for your uh, input. You, you know, you you made a noble sacrifice to, to science. But in humans, I definitely like we, we're way different than rats. But I think it gives us a good basis of how we can perceive things. And if we know that like a calpain destroys things, then it can destroy a junctophilin and then it can move it away. And so we don't have that release in calcium. But like, you know, I when you look at my career as a scientist, it's four, maybe six years that I've been like doing science. And you compare it to the people that have been doing this science where it's like 20, 30, 40 years. Um, I don't know if you can say like, oh, we know this for sure. If it's like at best, this is our understanding right now. Um, and we have enough data to be like, yeah, it's within these proposed mechanisms somewhere. That's cool. So, I, I feel mean, like definitely we know, always need more research. I feel like we know a lot less than we pretend like we know. Oh, but yeah. I was just like <laughs> curious your opinion. But like, 100%. I, we're kind of just like, hey, this makes sense right now. Let's do yeah. this. Let's, uh, let's operate from this being the truth. And I feel like we have so much work to do, especially with performance, nutrition, like optimizing the human. Uh, we oh, yeah. know it seems like actually very little about it. Yeah, um, it's 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 both really cool and also like really bad because I think, you know, when I presented this stuff, I, I don't know how many people were aware of any of it. You know, and then 10 years later, they can be telling their clients, you know, actually, it's this. And then I'm giving another presentation like, oh, actually, it's totally different. But it's the same way, you know, people used to think lactate was the cause of soreness. And that mm-hmm. was only like 20, 30 years ago. No, people were saying that when I was an undergrad. Yeah. Oh, yeah. yeah. <laughs> okay. I mean, that was <laughs> what like, was being told. For sure. Yeah. It's, so, like, you still talk to people now and they're like, oh, yeah, lactate. And it's like, it's 2022. How does... How do you still think that? But if you've never been told, then like you're you're ignorant in not a way that you – it's just because you just don't know, mm-hmm. you know? I guess naive so, is a better word. Yeah. But. So when you're talking about like this, this strength loss, I think a lot of the times we hear someone who is pretty consistent with strength training or working out and life gets busy and they have to take a few weeks off and then they're like terrified of losing strength. That's actually (laughs) not what is happening. It's actually like in this process or is that like, is that happening or is it more so what you just described of almost not letting your body like rest and recover properly? Yeah, so I that's a really good point. I guess I should have prefaced it with like this is a natural thing that happens when you're recovering from exercise. Okay. So like the reason why you can let's say you like deadlift 450 pounds on Monday. Well, on Tuesday, you most likely will not be able to deadlift mm-hmm. 450 pounds. And it's because of these reasons, right? It's like, mm-hmm. oh, I can't even get the neural processes sent to my periphery to actually do what I want it to do. But in three, four, five days, maybe you'll be able to do it again because everything is back to being healed. Um, If you take a couple weeks off or something, strength is is really cool because it is neural. And so even if you take a couple days off or a couple weeks off, it can come back pretty quickly because there's no like structural change that has to happen. It's just that like, oh, my neurons need to get back to being uh, synchronized or whatever. Mm-hmm. Um, and it takes like a, a pretty decent amount of time, like barring any injuries, uh, like 30-ish days to see like 
actual decreases in strength where you're like, oh, actually, I used to be able to do 500, but right now I can only do like 400. Like, yeah, that's a pretty big loss. Mm -hmm. But, you know, you taking a week or two off and still being like pretty active, you just like not in the gym. Yeah, that 500 might go to 490, which is whatever in the grand scheme of things. Yeah, (laughs) whatever. (laughs) (laughs) So how does inflammation play a role in all of this? Yeah. So this um, more in the this relates more to like the the soreness aspect of damage. So we know that um, muscle damage is necessary for uh, adaptations to occur. Right. One of the things I've been thinking about lately, because I've been like very stressed, you know, Mm -hmm. uh, is that while I think we all want like nice, easy lives. Right. I think it's natural to want that. But you only ever adapt to anything if you're put under stress uh and it needs to be a certain amount of stress right like you don't want to just like hate your life all the time or hate training all the time but things need to be broken down in order to send some sort of signal to adapt and that's true in physiology as it is in life um so inflammation plays a role by kind of sending those signals out uh when we have any sort of breakdown that occurs um those macrophages are part of the inflammatory response, right? Uh, We'll have our pro-inflammation and then our anti-inflammation. And 10, definitely 20 years ago, but I think 10 years ago, we started hearing a big push on anti-inflammatories and having drinks that are, you know, uh, decreasing inflammation within our body because it's a bad thing. Um, and while it's true, uh, when, if you're like sick or have high amounts of body fat or not sleeping well, you know, there's a lot of things that can cause consistent increases in inflammation. That's a bad thing. But exercise is a stimulus. It's a stress that's necessary. So we do have an increase in inflammation, but then we also have a decrease in it. And it's those transient increases that get the brain or get the muscles to say like, oh, we have to adapt. So during the pro-inflammation, we're sending out these cytokines and myokines that are saying like, hey, we might need to get satellite cells to repair these muscle damages. Satellite cells then are mobilized, right? So it's like, okay, this is our signal. Let's inflame the muscle with backup resources so it can heal. In the anti-inflammatory process, so it's like kind of like within two days, those new satellite cells or the new processes that are put within muscles are now differentiating based on the anti-inflammatory signals. So I go from saying we need cells and we need uh, resources to let's put those resources to work, to rebuild muscle, to rebuild uh, proteins uh, in the extracellular matrix that might have been broken down. So that's like inflammation is a necessary component to exercise and to exercise adaptations. Now, what's important is when we get into the recovery strategies is understanding the role that they play. So sometimes you don't want the inflammation because it is going to come with maybe more soreness. And sometimes you do because if I'm trying to get bigger, I need the inflammation for muscle hypertrophy. Um, So yeah, inflammation plays a critical role in for sure muscle growth. I think a little less in muscle strength, um, but understanding the role that they play, that pro and anti-inflammatories play kind of helps with the recovery talk. Yeah. And how, if someone like had a question on how you kind of keep track of these things, how like how do they know if they're experiencing that that muscle damage or whatever you know the question may be from them i think in another podcast episode you mentioned c z disc streaming but give us some other practical things yeah so we can't just like consistently biopsy our muscles right Mm -hmm. and be like oh yeah i have damage (laughs) and the thing is like if you look at like ultra marathon runners or triathletes like who are consistently training, they just have, they have muscle damage all the time. And if you are like training four or five times a week, and it's even if it's like good training, we're all walking around a little bit 
damage. We're all damaged goods, right? Um, but we can't directly see that, so we focus on the indirect. Um, and in, in the indirect, we can look at uh, blood markers like CKLDH myoglobin, but again, you're not consistently taking your blood. So we can look at things like soreness. It's a terrible proxy for how good a workout was. It's a really good proxy to how damaged you might be or how bad you feel. Because obviously, even if like mentally you're like, oh, I love training. I'm in a good space. If you're sore everywhere, you just will be less apt to doing anything. So that's that's probably the most practical one. And then if you uh, either have technology like a jump pad or a bar speed uh, or you have a really good eye, right? You can see that like a decrease in maximum voluntary contractions can also be uh, a marker because you come in a train. I'm like, how are you doing? You're like, I slept great. My mood is great. Relationships are good. I ate well. We get you on a jump mat. We know that in general, you can jump 24 inches. And today you come in and your jump is 18. That's a problem. We're going to test you again, give you three minutes, warm you up a bit. It's still maybe 18, it's 19. Oh, like you're not sore? Like, I don't know. I don't think I'm that sore. Okay, well, maybe let's get you under a bar and see how you're moving. They're moving even slower, right? That means that we have, for some reason, a decrease in maximum voluntary contraction. So a decrease in our ability to create force, uh, to create power. And that is like a telltale sign that something is wrong physically. So at that point, you know, if you're a practitioner, you're thinking like, you know what, let's not do intensity work or drop the, uh, sorry, let's not do strength or power work or drop the intensity to maybe make it so it's a little easier on you. Or you know what, you're getting close to competition or whatever it is. Um, let's just make this a mobility day or go the fuck home and sleep, right? <laughs> like whatever might be going on, something is not right and you are not in a right state of mind to be doing to be doing this um so that's a good one vertical jump is an easy one to to test especially if you have a jump mat or if you you know you're like oh well i, I can normally reach this height i'm in my house try to reach it if it's like way lower then something may be wrong or you may need more time to warm up uh with my clients i track volume as we're doing stuff if you have a high volume session like consistently or a high volume block, you're definitely going to be more fatigued, more sore than normal. So if you can like understand that, hey, Nicole is really trying to hypertrophy for these next six weeks, she's going to inherently be a little more tired, a little more sore because of what we're trying to get to happen. Maybe we don't have her do super fast sprints or high power, high intensity stuff because that's not the goal right now. A little sprinkled in is fine but it's not going to be as fast and as powerful as when you are more primed to do that. Uh, and then soreness scales are super easy. I love using it on Train Heroic. I love asking people like, oh, how sore are you today? And they're like, yeah, mentally I'm good, but I'm at a one out of five. That's a problem. Maybe we try and give you a massage real quick or do something like foam roll even. Uh, it, see if that helps or at least kind of like gets you to think maybe I'm not as much in pain as I thought. And if it doesn't, then go home, eat, sleep, figure out your fucking life so that you are not, <laughs> so that you are not like this all the time. Yeah. And I think that's where having that more like holistic approach where we're looking at everything of like, not just how are you training and what are you eating, but what is your work life like? What are your relationships yeah. like? Are you financially stressed? Like all of that is impacting your body in ways mm -hmm. that you may not realize. And um, it's funny because I think one day, Ro, on your like story or something on Instagram, <laughs> you posted like from Train Heroic that you were like a nine out of a 10 on like intensity for your workout. Yeah, or it felt just... so bad. <laughs> yeah, yeah, and I was just like, damn. <laughs> Like, yeah. and so I guess like if, I don't know, I also use train heroic, um, for my training. So I really like being able to check in with myself, but if you're looking at that for you personally, or with the people that you're training on that scale of like one to 10 of like intensity wise, after you're done with your workout, 
what's like, is there like an ideal place to be or is that solely based on like what your goals are at the time? Yeah, I think I, I, it's definitely, uh, sorry, my mic was far away. Uh, it's definitely depending on goals because that I felt so bad that day. I don't really know why. I, I know I'm under like high amounts of stress. My sleep is kind of messed up. And oh, that's what it was. My cousin was in town. Shout out mm-hmm. Joseph was in town for five days. Mm-hmm. And so I was not sleeping normally. It's we're hitting up. We're, yeah, yeah, we were hitting up. We we're hitting up every brewery we could. You know, mm-hmm. like I was doing a lot of stuff outside of my like normal. And so, of course, after four or five days of that, it's going to impact my training. But I couldn't finish it. I couldn't lift as much. So, even though I only did like three out of six blocks or whatever, yeah, I was at a nine out of ten, and that's a problem for me because, <laughs> you know, for obvious reasons. But like, if I am the way I'm training right now, just for time's sake and and just keep myself sane is. I hit all intensity stuff. My volume is super low uh, because I need to be able to sit down and write and do other things and not be like physically tired. Uh, So if I see a nine out of 10, that means that my next training session is probably going to be affected too, which is a problem. If I had done all of those exercises like I was planning to, I would have been like a 13 out of 10 and probably would not have been good for the whole week. There are times where that intensity may be needed. Uh, so if you're like getting ready to peak for uh, a powerlifting competition or an uh, Olympic weightlifting competition, then maybe like a week or two, a couple of days, depending on how trained you are before would be fine. But that's just kind of as a primer, like nine out of tens and 10 out of tens should almost always be in competition because you only have a certain amount of 10 out of 10 is like in your life, in your training life, really. So why would you just like do that in training and not somewhere where you think it might get you a medal Mm -hmm. or some sort of performance? So um, yeah, definitely goal. I think you should train hard for sure. Um, But, you know, most people I think should probably be within like a, I don't know, six to eight range where they're like, yeah, I pushed myself. This was Mm. hard, but it wasn't like, very very hard and it's gonna leave me dead but it's like i did work today i'm excited i push myself i got enough of a stress i'll come back in a day or two do the same thing um yeah 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 i think a lot of people who are working out just recreationally and just wanting to add that into like their healthy habits there's this misconception that we have to be dead after every single workout and oh, yeah. that's actually very counterintuitive so it's super it's cool to talk about yeah. this. <laughs> Um, so all of this information was super helpful and I guess now like moving forward, um, what kind of recovery strategies can we use to recover faster? Yeah. Um, I, we're going to talk about stuff like cold heat massage ball, but like sleep and nutrition Mm -hmm. is like the first thing, right? Mm -hmm. If you are not sleeping, if you are not eating, then no amount of hyperice or, or therabody is going to help like you can normatech the shit out of your legs and compress them and everything but if you are not doing the basics then this is going to make a marginal difference um, but assuming you have your nutrition in place you have your sleep in place then you can kind of start to um, do other things that might help to quicken the healing process or uh, allow you to adapt more um, so with the nutrition and supplements, I think we talked about that in the in the soreness episode, so we won't get about get into it more because most of that has to do with like the role that quote unquote functional foods and uh, fatty acids and vitamins play on the inflammatory response to make you less sore. Um, I'm not sure about how those play a role in like uh, strength loss or strength gain, but we know that if you're eating right, you're going to recover faster. So like, that's what I'll say about that. Um, when it comes to cold, I think cold therapy has exploded on in the industry uh, really within the past 10 years, but especially like this past two years, I think it's because, you know, when Corona happened, people were like, fuck it, I got time to sit in a tub. Mm-hmm. And I have my own issues with it, but I also think that it's great. So I think if you sell an ice barrel for $1,200 and you buy one, you're a bit of an idiot. Um, because <laughs> for my dissertation, I got this like 110 gallon trough for like 90 bucks. 
So do that instead. Like, <laughs> why do you need this $1,200 ice barrel? Anyway, uh, cold therapy helps with recovery for sure. Um, and it's main process, because I don't want to get like too molecular, but is we are vasoconstricting and we're going parasympathetic. So we all know that there's a, a fight or flight response. And as we do things, you know, most of us live in a sympathetic or a fight, uh, uh, I guess, uh, zone. But when we slow down to eat, slow down to sleep, do some meditation, like whatever, when we take our mind off things, we start to downregulate and that makes mm-hmm. us parasympathetic. And cold therapy really forces you to do that because it it shocks you to the point where your your breath has to kind of like speed up a bit and then you're like, okay, I'm more relaxed. And your heart also kind of speeds up a bit and then starts to kind of downregulate. Um, but importantly, when it comes with recovery, when we just talked about, it's going to help with phase one. So it's going to help by not getting you as sore, uh, but it's going to hurt phase two. And that means that you are not going to get as much adaptations. So we talked about how macrophages move to the extracellular matrix and they do all this good stuff and inflammation is necessary, blah, blah. All that runs through the highway of your body, which is the blood vessels. Like we send all of that stuff through blood vessels. If I vasoconstrict, that means that my highways are shut down or at least not as efficient, right? So I am not going to be able to pump those macrophages or it's, it's going to make it harder for the macrophages to get where they need to go. Um, but more importantly, I think those macrophages aren't going to be able to send out the inflammatory signals to say we're going to get soreness. So that's a good thing, right? Because we don't we're trying to train for or relax for the next thing. But we're also not going to release those pro and anti-inflammatories as well which means that I'm not going to get a signal to send out the um, things that are going to help the muscle. And I'm not going to get a signal that says, oh, now let's repair it. So it's really trading, you know, six weeks from now's adaptations for being able to perform tomorrow. So it's a really good strategy for if you're in season and you have hard practices and then you have a game because the goal then is to optimize because I need to be able to work at a high level multiple times. It's not to adapt. Um, so you aren't going to have high volume training sessions anyway, or at least you shouldn't uh, if you know anything uh, during like a season. But sports themselves are inherently high volume. So like you need to be able to recover from that. So cold therapy uh, is a really good way. But again, good for now, bad for or not as good for later. Uh, and whereas with heat, heat is kind of less studied and it's, it's what I'm studying in my dissertation. But if we look at the things that are opposite of cold and heat, when you're in cold environments, you vasoconstrict. Well, when you're in hot environments, you vasodilate. So you're adding more lanes to that highway. So I should theoretically be able to push out more blood And then I should theoretically be able to push out more of those macrophages, more of the resources that are going to help with the healing process. Um, And I think that's where most of our understanding for why it might help comes from. Hyperemia, an increase in blood. So an increase in resources and an increase in shuttling out all of the bad things in the blood that may be there in that moment. Um, And this can be done like just like cold, uh, whole body. So you can sit in a sauna, a hot tub, whatever, um, or local. So like you can have an ice pad and then you can have a heating pad, right? Anytime my back feels like kind of weird, I'll get on a heating pad and then I'm like magically better. And to me, it's, it's definitely like a, a mental and neural thing, but like, it also might just be that I'm getting blood sent to where it's cold. That's going to help to warm it up. My neurons are going to like feel at least a bit better, even if they, don't. Um, Or even if like the structure itself doesn't. Um, But that's a good thing because it helps me, you know, move and whatnot. So if I have an increase in the highways, then I have an increase in not only the pro-inflammatories, which means I'm sending out more of my resources, but also in the anti-inflammatories. So maybe I'm sending out more signals to repair. Uh, And so when I think about that, It may mean that I'm better to go tomorrow and I'm also not affecting six weeks from now 
because I'm not cutting off the adaptations like I would be for cold. Um, I did pilot this this uh, this past week, um, and there is definitely a trade off there because with cold you like you get out because you're like oh I'm cold. If you get too hot um, <laughs> one day, you definitely get dizzy and lightheaded and whatever. But the next day, if you're not drinking enough water, then you've also fucked yourself, right? Like, I think it's harder for you to mess up with cold than it is with heat, just because like you, you're, the way your body is able to deal with heat is better. And then it can like all of a sudden spike. And then you're like, oh man, I, I didn't drink enough water. I lost too much salt. I blah, 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 blah. So now my training session is not going to be as good as I thought it was going to be. Um, and so that's also something to think about where like, yeah, it may be good or it may be better than ice, but only if you are doing the things to correct it because being in the heat does fuck you up, especially if it's for long periods of time and it's high levels of heat. Um, but yeah, so that's why I think that it may be, I guess we'll see in a couple months uh, if it's just as beneficial or you know, not, um, when it comes to the heating, but that's how it works is, is, or at least where I propose it works is through the more highways, more blood flow, stuff like that. Uh, and then massage therapy is, is, is I think interesting, uh, because whether it's vibration or just a straight massage, you're going to get an increase in blood flow, um, which is a good thing, right? We just talked about how blood flow means heat means sending, resources means maybe sending healing. Uh, but I think also when you think about those nociceptors, you know, when you're like really fucking sore and you foam roll or massage, it's so unbelievably painful at first. But then at, you know, after like a minute or two, you're like, oh, okay, like I've gotten used to this pain. We're fine. So I think that's another way that massage therapy or vibration therapy works because it's either desensitizing those nociceptors or your brain is kind of like moving its pain threshold and it's saying like, oh, I thought this was pain, but actually this is pain. So if that was pain, then this pain that we were in is no longer pain, uh, which I think sounds confusing when I just said it, but it's really that you're like moving that threshold. Um, and I'm sure that there's some like other uh, mechanisms where uh, it may be helping, but one, I think that's outside the scope of this podcast and then two like i haven't read enough into the potential molecular pathways that it that it might um might affect that person so um yeah and i think finally i think i've been talking for like 20 minutes straight is a repeated bout effect like the best way to make sure you don't get damaged is to ramp up in an effective way because if i squat at 50 percent, which is you know, not a lot, but it's still 50% for a week or two, that makes 70% easier, which makes 90% easier, which makes, you know, 95 of my one RM easier. And that's because we're building up the processes to not get as damaged. So my strength loss isn't going to be as bad. My DOMS aren't going to be as bad. Uh, and this comes from the remodeling of the extracellular matrix, uh, and then a bunch of other things. But yeah, that's like the easiest ways to not get, get as damaged and sore is to prime yourself to to do things that you want to do. So, which is why we want people to lift all the time. Cause then if they go hike or go do something, they're like, oh yeah, I'm accustomed to mm -hmm. to activity. So um yeah, that was uh that was that. Those are all those recovery strategies. Love it. This was definitely a really interesting and an enlightening episode, especially um, when it comes to just like having factual information about muscle soreness and strength loss and how we can continue to support our bodies. And if that is something like we're interested in either getting better at or incorporating into our lives, just knowing how to approach it in the best way possible. Yeah. So for thank sure. you, Ro. Of course. Yes, I'm awake now. <laughs> yeah, you're like, I got to nerd out at 8.30 and now yeah. you're good to go for the day. <laughs> yeah, now I'm going to bomb some pre-workout and go lift. It's going to be sick. <laughs> <Nice>. <laughs> well, I'm going to outro us and I hope you all have a wonderful day since we are not podcasting in the afternoon slash evening. We now have the whole day ahead of us. <laughs> 
But we are all currently accepting new clients. Obviously, Ro is super knowledgeable and the master of all things exercise and performance. I am an intuitive eating, gentle nutrition, health at every size dietitian. Brooke is a dietitian specializing in healing the gut microbiome to solve digestive and hormonal symptoms for athletes and active adults. So definitely reach out, hit us up if you are looking for someone to work with in these specific areas. Be sure to follow us at Health Unfiltered Pod on Instagram and keep those awesome questions of the week coming. Please rate us, share us, and leave a review wherever you get your podcasts. And yeah, that's all I got. <laughs> and yeah. Okay. Yeah. And yeah. <laughs> Nobody let her outro anymore. (laughs) Brooke, you want to do the honors? I sure do. (laughs) Cue that music. (laughs) Bye, y'all. Peace out, everyone. Bye.